Welcome to the Manor. Welcome back to the Twin Terrors Macabre Manor of Mead, Metal, and Mayhem. I'm Jody. I'm James. And this episode, uh, we are going to talk about the origins of hard rock and sometimes metal band Deep Purple. Yeah, and we're going to drink mead, too. Uh, well, you are. I, <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> I, I, I would join in if I had any mead. And, um, I don't, uh, I've, I've had my allotted calories for the day, so beer's out. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I'll drink mead and you talk about Deep Purple. Yeah. The story of Deep Purple starts in uh, 1967 with a guy who actually was never even in the band. <laughs> uh, a guy named Chris Curtis. Uh, he had been the drummer at one point for the band The Searchers. The Searchers were a Mercy Beat band from England. And one of their biggest hits, and maybe have been their biggest hit, was a uh, cover of a Jackie DeShannon song called Needles and Pins. Yeah, that's a good song. I, yeah. I like uh, Tom Petty's version, too. Yes. Yeah, that's probably the one I've heard the most. Uh, anyway, uh, Chris Curtis had uh, moved to London from up around the Liverpool area, done a couple of solo things, had a song called Aggravation that was kind of a hit after he left the Searchers. Studio musicians supposedly involved in the recording of that song included Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin. Woo, Zepp. Yeah. So uh, Chris Curtis, uh, like I said, late in late 1967, contacts a friend of his or an acquaintance uh, named Tony Edwards, who was a clothier in London, but he was trying to get into the music business as a, as a manager. He, in turn, contacts a couple of friends of his, businessman John Coletta and Ron Heyer, and they form a company called HEC Enterprises. Curtis wanted Edwards to manage his career, moved to London uh, from Liverpool, like I said, and he rented a flat with a guy named John Lord. John Douglas Lord, uh, born June 9th, 1941, and uh, sadly passed away July 16th, 2012. Learned classical piano as a child, also influenced by the playing of jazz and blues and early rock organists and piano players, uh, such as Jerry Lee Lewis. Jimmy Smith and Jimmy McGriff. Oh, some some good pianists. Yeah. Uh, rumor has it that after moving to London in the early '60s, in addition to playing in several bands, he also did some session work. So uh, I'm um, just thought yeah. I'd jump in since yeah. this seems about perfect since you're talking about moving to London. Yes. Mercy Beat mm-hmm. comes from Mercy Side, which is sort of the central, just a bit above Wales North west part of england yeah. uh which is close to liverpool where initially from so yeah yeah we, we talked before about the different beats mercy beat and right and all the different ones so yeah it's it's that one's actually named for its location yeah and that would have been uh that's that's the area the beatles came from because they came from liverpool liverpool so yeah so the the searchers had been you know part of that with the beatles but uh, supposedly uh john lord's one of the um sessions that he supposedly did this was according to john lord this was from an an interview he did in 1989 for modern keyboard magazine um interview with joe lalena actually i think it's how you pronounce it (laughs) (laughs) um was on the kinks you really got me again supposedly this song contains a jimmy page guitar solo 
That, supposedly. That's the, supposedly. <laughs> that's the rumor that goes around. John Lord was one of the people who kind of spread that rumor around. He said that in this interview. Page has denied that. If you ask Ray Davies, he gets really pissed off about it. <laughs> yeah, actually, I think that's kind of been disproven a fair bit. Yeah. So, well, I mean, yeah. even even Jimmy Page says he didn't do it. Some of the groups that John Lord played with included the Artwood Combo, later renamed the Artwoods, uh, which was led by, take a guess. Artwood? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now. Uh, yeah, I'm so smart. <laughs> now, Okay. So I'm going to test how smart you are. Oh, who crap. is Art Wood? He's the guy who was the lead of the Artwoods. Okay. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> nope, because I'm smart. <laughs> <laughs> but what what else was he? Well, I, I don't know. Um, let's see. Wood, wood, wood. Well, I'm trying to think. So British and uh-huh. wood. Yes. So I know when we did Sweet, we talked about Paul McCartney and his brother, Mike McCartney. Oh. So if it's Wood, who the hell else? The only Wood I can think of offhand is Ronnie Wood from the Stones. There you go. He's really? Ron Wood's brother, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I am so smart. S-M-R-T. I mean, S-M-A-R-T. <laughs> this band, the Artwoods, evolved into the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Now, do you have any idea why they changed the name to St. Valentine's Day Massacre? Well, I don't, unless they played for Al Capone at one time or another. No. The film uh, Bonnie and Clyde was out at the time, and 1930s gangster-era stuff had become very popular. So So, the Al Capone thing was, yeah, yeah, tangentially related, but that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. After that, John Lord founded a band called Santa Barbara Machine Head with... Ron Wood on guitar, (laughs) and I have a sample of that. Here's part of a track from Santa Barbara Machine Head called Rubber Monkey. Eventually, uh, John Lord wound up filling in with a band called the Flower Pot Men, uh, where he met a bass player named Nick Simper. I will get to more on Nick Simper in a moment. Chris Curtis, going back to him, he had an idea for a band uh, that he wanted to call Roundabout, which would feature a core of about three permanent members, and then others who would come and go as needed or as they wanted. Tony Edwards and John Lord liked the idea, and on a suggestion from Curtis, Edwards contacted Richie Blackmore, who was then living in Germany, uh, about playing guitar. Before Blackmore arrived, 
John Lord and Tony Edwards decided to move ahead without Chris Curtis due to his somewhat erratic behavior. And I don't mean necessarily like crazy, but almost like he was getting a little full of himself and was kind of turning into, I'm going to say dictator. (laughs) Emphasis on the first syllable. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I added the tater. Tater, yeah. Richie Blackmore, uh, born Richard Hugh Blackmore, uh, April 14th, 1945, and had received his first guitar at the age of 11 on the condition, according to his father, that he learned to play properly. So he took a year's worth of classical guitar lessons. He left school at around 15, worked as a radio mechanic, and took lessons uh, from a guitarist in London, a session guitarist, who we've mentioned in previous episodes, Big Jim Sullivan. Nice. Yeah. In 1963, uh, Richie Blackmore began working as a session musician himself and uh, was also playing live in such bands as The Outlaws. Uh, was playing in Neil Christian's band and on, on and off again for the next few years with Screaming Lord Such and Screaming Lord <laughs> Such and the Savages. Apparently that was the name of the backing band was the savages. So they all got together. John Lord said, Hey, I know this bass player uh, named Nick Simper. Uh, He had been in bands uh, like Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. And after his stint with John Lord and the Flower Pot Men, um, he would also join Screaming Lord Such and the Savages. I did look, I did not see where Richie Blackmore and Nick Simper were ever in Screaming Lord Such's band at the same time. In February of 1968, John Lord, Richie Blackmore, and Nick Simper got together with drummer Bobby Woodman and began rehearsing as Roundabout. Uh, While they were searching for a singer, Richie met a guy named Mick Angus, who sang. He came in and auditioned, and they they liked him, so they were going to offer him the job. And he wasn't impressed with Woodman's drumming, and he suggested a guy named Ian Pace. Ooh, I know him. He's in Deep Purple. He is. <laughs> uh, Blackmore had actually seen Ian Pace perform, and uh, he liked the idea. So Mick Angus went and talked to Ian Pace and uh, invited him to come audition for the drum spot. The band, which was the maze that Ian Pace was in, had a singer named Rod Evans, uh, who overheard or, or found out about it, and he snuck over to audition for the singing position which they then offered to him. (laughs) That sounds like musical chairs. (laughs) Yeah. So this Bobby Woodman guy, he went back to France because that's where he had been living and and performing before he came and auditioned. And uh, Mick Angus, he kind of went, you know what, this Rod Evans guy, he's a better singer than I am. I'm going to stick around, though, if you guys need a roadie. And that's what they did. They kept him around as a roadie for a while. So at this point, they've got John Lord, Richie Blackmore, uh, Nick Simper, Ian Pace, uh, born Ian Anderson Pace, June 29th, 1948, uh, started drumming at the age of 15, and uh, he'd been in a, a few bands around the area, uh, Georgie and the Ravons, MI5, which later became The Maze, which I, I just mentioned. And That's uh, different than MC5. Uh, yes, different from MC5. And then, like I said, Rod Evans, uh, Roderick Evans, born <laughs> Roder- <laughs> oh, wrong, Roderick, yeah born december 19th 1947 
was in the maze and uh, had been in a band called the Horizons. Uh, so about a month later, Roundabout got some demos uh, for some songs, one of which was Hush, a uh, cover of a song by Joe South, and uh, also a cover of the Beatles' Help. And they also had a couple of original songs they demoed. This actually landed them a deal with EMI Records in England, and I'm not sure how to pronounce this, so I'm going to guess and try to stick with it throughout this. Tetragrammaton, a record label in the U.S., which was partially owned by comedian Bill Cosby. In April of 1968, they... See, this is moving really quick, actually. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Um, in, in April of 1968, they embark on a tour of Scandinavia. No one in the band actually liked the name Roundabout. And since Chris Curtis was no longer in the band, I think they kind of felt like there was no reason to keep the name. Shortly before they did an appearance on Danish TV, they make the change to the name Deep Purple, which was a name that Richie Blackmore favored. The rest of the band had liked the name Fire. So to me, this is kind of maybe the first instance of Richie Blackmore imposing his will on the rest of the band. Which he, I'm sure he did that? Really? Oh, yeah, and I'm sure it's going to come up a lot later. Um, <laughs> at, at this point, however, John Lord was viewed as more of the band's leader. Okay, where do the do you know where Deep Purple the name derived from? I do not. Although I, I'm thinking that there there was a there is a song named Deep Purple, but I don't. I really didn't see that they pulled that name from that. But they could <laughs> have. We've talked about when we were in high school and we had a a band with some other schoolmates. One of the guys, Douglas, a keyboard player. One of the high school dances we were going to play. I had said, hey, let's do this song, Hush, and everybody liked it. So that was one of the few instances where James and I got to do a song we really wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, and your dad actually uh, helped. Yeah, he came up and played bass because we didn't really have a bass player in the band at the time, and Douglas was doing all the bass stuff on his keyboard. Yeah, um, but that song needed some good bass. It, it did, and, and Dad knew the song, so my dad got up and, and played, the, played the song with us. But I remember, I remember Douglas saying that he told his dad that we were going to be playing Deep Purple, and his dad thought we were going to be playing the song. <laughs> he didn't realize we were playing a song by the band right. called Deep Purple. Um, I, surprisingly enough, it seemed like Douglas's dad had never heard of Deep Purple, but I don't the band, so I don't, I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm gonna, yeah, let's move on. Yeah, um, on July 17th, the album Shades of Deep Purple is released in the U.S along with the single Hush. You might have heard this song before, and we'll play a little bit of it for you here now. Okay, both the album and the song, uh, Hush, are successful in, in the States. The album hit number 24 on the charts. Hush peaked at number four on the singles charts. 
it's a combination of psychedelic progressive pop and hard rock uh, with a lot of classical influence inspired by the American band Vanilla Fudge. And they kind of bridge the commercial and underground sounds. In addition to the single Hush and the cover of Help that they had demoed earlier, uh, the album also contains a cover of Hey Joe, which had recently been a hit for Jimi Hendrix, and a song by bluesman Skip James uh, titled I'm So Glad. Also included were the original compositions and the address and Mandrick Root. In August, they play the Red Lion Pub in Warrington, which I'm assuming is in London or around London. The opening act, any guesses? Vanilla Fudge. No, not Vanilla Fudge. Bud Zeppelin. No. Deep Purple. Oh, wait, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Nope, no, go ahead. (laughs) No clue. But you you should know this, because we've done an episode on this. The Sweet. Yes. (laughs) See, I just needed a hint. That's cool. Technically, The Sweet Shop, but... (laughs) And we all remember why they changed their name. Yes. <laughs> well, if you don't, go back and listen to that one. We're going to keep moving. <laughs> yes. British audiences are not very receptive to them. The, the British audiences considered them to be too American, maybe too full of themselves or, or something like that. I don't know. However, uh, due to the success in the U.S. of the debut album and the single, the band also went back into the studio in August to record the follow-up album. Uh, they titled it the, and we talked about this in the, in the Robert Plant folklore episode. I, I've heard this name pronounced a couple of different ways. I'm going to say it this way because if, if I'm thinking that's how it's actually pronounced on the album, because one of the songs actually has the name in it, the book of Taliesin. Uh, yeah, that's the one we keep screwing up. Yeah. Now I've heard it pronounced Taliesin, but I, I think Rod Evans pronounced it uh, Taliesin. On, on the album. And he was a Welsh bard from a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> this album featured even more of a classical influence. Since they hadn't had much time for songwriting between the two albums, this album also featured several covers. Covers. Yeah. Easy uh, for you to say. Apparently it wasn't. Including Neil Diamond's song, Kentucky Woman, uh, which was the first single off of this album. Um, Here's a little bit of that. It also contains another Beatles song, a cover of We Can Work It Out. Supposedly, they they included that because Paul McCartney had been impressed with their cover of Help. It's also got a 10-minute version of Ike and Tina Turner's hit, River Deep Mountain High, complete with John Lord's interpretation of also 
Frack Zarathustra. If you've seen the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey, it's the opening theme. Oh, yeah, that. On August 10th, they played the National Jazz and Blues Festival on Sunbury on Thames, which eventually becomes the Reading Festival. Oh. Uh, which down the road is going to be a big thing in heavy metal. In October, Deep Purple had their American debut at the Inglewood Forum in Inglewood, California, in support of Cream during their farewell, farewell tour. They did not stay on the Cream tour for long, rumor being that they had maybe been showing up the headliners. Oh, I bet Jack and Ginger did not care for that whatsoever. Uh, no, but, you know, by this point, Clapton was pretty much done. So yeah, I'm sure Clapton probably didn't care. Yeah, this is their, this <laughs> is late 68. Yeah, so this so is their farewell, their farewell tour. tour. They're, yeah, they're about done. Yeah, Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker were, they were, they were competing with each other enough on stage as it was. So I'm pretty sure they were not happy that Deep Purple may have been showing them up. Well, you know, when you're competing so bad that Eric Clapton walks off stage and they don't even realize it because they're competing so hard. <laughs> yeah. It's probably not hard for any band as talented as Deep Purple to show them up. Yeah. At some point during this tour, which lasted through the end of the year, they taped an appearance on Playboy After Dark, which was a TV show hosted by Hugh Hefner, where they played Hush. They have released that. It's on like the, the remastered version of the, the, the first album. Uh, since we've already played a sample from Hush, I'm not going to include that. But So when, uh, when the girls were around also, were they Hush bunnies? Uh, I don't know. Bazinga. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Moving on to 1969. <laughs> um, in January... They return to the UK. They record another single, a song called Emeretta, supposedly about a girl that Rod Evans met uh, when they were in the U.S. on tour. And supposedly she was from the cast, the U.S. cast of the musical Hair. I, I love that musical. You know, I still haven't really listened to it or watched the movie or anything. <laughs> I keep going. Here's a, here's a little sample of Emeretta. After that came out, they uh, they did another tour of the UK, and while they were touring the UK, uh, in between dates, they would squeeze in sessions for their third album. They finished it up in March. By this time, uh, due to the success that they'd had in the US with the first album, uh, they started getting write-ups in the British music press, uh, which they hadn't been getting really a whole lot of before that. Yeah, the British music press seems like a bunch of arses. Uh, sometimes, yeah. Deep Purple was not the only band in this era that were hugely, insanely popular and talented to be ignored. No, I'm sure if we go back and look, Zeppelin was getting the same thing. Zeppelin's album would have just come out in January of 69. Yeah. So this would have been going on at the same time. 
at the time, uh, John Lord said in an interview with the British press, we must be the only schizophrenic group in existence. If we go out and do a day in England, we can earn 150 pounds. In the States, a similar date will earn us about 2,500 pounds. So there, there was a quite a bit of difference. <laughs> between, yeah. Where should you go? <laughs> when asked about why he thought they weren't as successful in the UK, remember, I, I mentioned earlier in the episode that some of the UK audience may have, you know, thought they were too American or that they were too full of themselves. But John Lord said uh, it was because we've had hits. I think the British underground devotees tend to look down on us. Americans are so much more broad-minded about this business of having hit singles. Now, I want to add something here. This is something that's carried over into heavy metal. Any sign of having commercial success or heading in a commercial direction usually winds up being met with scorn from the fans. Yeah. Like you sold out. Yeah. Like you've sold out. And in in a way it kind of goes back even to what we think of as, as here in the, here in the States as the British invasion bands, the Beatles, the stones, a lot of those, especially in London, not so much with the Liverpool bands, but especially in London, when some of those bands were starting out and they were playing nothing but, American blues music, if they started trying to do something commercial, a lot of those hardcore blues fans would get mad. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I get that because you like a band because of their sound and then their sound right. changes. Yes. Yeah. So, and that irritates you. But if they're making 10 pounds you know, for, for the blues people and a thousand pounds because they're more polished and more, I hate to say pop, but it's popular. Yeah. What the hell? yeah I'm not going to starve just to satisfy a handful of you. I agree with that. And that's why, you know, going back to the, the, the episode we did on Kiss's final tour, I don't have a problem with these guys making a shit ton of money. <laughs> I don't, I don't have a problem with Gene Simmons making as much money as he can. Because I understand, I don't want to starve. Why should they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They should be starving for their art. No. If you want them to keep doing it the way you want them to, then be a patron and give them a lot of money and yeah. tell them you'll do that as long as they keep making what you want. Yes. Until yeah. then, shut up. I I agree with that a, a bunch. But, you know, John Lord's comments had had an effect because the British press – started writing headlines about this and saying stuff like deep purple loses money by touring Britain, you know, (laughs) that's that's not what I said. (laughs) No, but it starts getting a more press. And, and I think, you know, and not necessarily, I don't know that it really affected their popularity at that point because what's funny and what I'll talk about when we do the next phase of this, because Right now, I'm only going to talk about what's the Mark I lineup, is that there's kind of a flip when the Mark II lineup comes up. But I'll I'll get more into that the next Deep Purple episode we do. So because they had success in the U.S., and they really weren't making a whole lot in the U.K., in the spring of 1969, in April, they returned to the U.S. for another tour. They start to run into some snags. There was supposed to be a tour supporting the Rolling Stones, that never materialized. The single Emeretta had low sales in both the U.S. and the U.K. markets. And while Hush 
and the album Shades of Deep Purple had been very successful in the U.S. Kentucky Woman and the Book of Taliesin didn't sell as well in the in the U.S. Also, Tetragrammaton, however you pronounce it, the U.S. record company, financially was a wreck and had failed to get the third album pressed in time for the tour that they'd started in April. In spite of all that, the band was getting tighter musically. They were developing their stage act, and they were already trending into a heavier and louder direction. However, in spite of that, tensions were growing among the band members, particularly with John Lord and Richie Blackmore on one side, and Rod Evans and Nick Semper on the other. And what was going on, John Lord and Richie Blackmore felt that Rod Evans and Nick Semper were not up to the task of playing or singing the type of material that Lord and Blackmore were starting to want to explore. Because they didn't know where Ian Pace kind of stood on this, they kind of took him aside and, and they asked him what he thought. And he said he was on board with the heavier direction, and if they wanted to make personnel changes, he was good with that. So this tour ends at the end of May, and in June, Etrogrammaton finally releases the third album. However, at this time, EMI Records in England finally gets around to releasing the Book of Taliesin in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> and it's only been out for you know, a few months in the U.S. Thanks. Uh, yeah. So this third album, I, I keep calling it the third album. It was their self-titled album, just called Deep Purple. And it was a departure from the first two. It's still progressive and retains pop elements and the classical elements that the, the first two had. It definitely was starting to show a shift towards a heavier sound. It also features more original songs and fewer covers, uh, the only cover is actually a song by Donovan called uh, Lelena. And the single Emeretta was not included on the album. Uh, it does have actually some of the best performances that the band had by that point. Songs such as Chasing Shadows, uh, Bird Has Flown, and uh, April. And here's a, actually a sample from April. EMI finally releases the album Deep Purple in September of 1969, but by that time, big changes had already occurred. And I will go into this a little bit more. Actually, I'll go into this a lot more. Like I said, the next time we get into the history of Deep Purple, but Nick Simper and Rod Evans were fired sometime around July or August of 1969. 
Evans wound up moving to California and in 1971 would form his own hard rock band, Captain Beyond, uh, which we might do an episode on them. That's a good album. Not as good as Captain Beefheart, but you know, what are you no. going to do? Yeah. But yeah, we've, I've listened to it. I think you were the one that even told me that Rod Evans was the one that did it because I had heard of it, but I didn't realize that Evans was in it. So yeah, we'll, we, we may we may do something a little bit more about that. After that, Rod Evans left music for a few years. He came back in 1980 with a bogus lineup under the Deep Purple name. <laughs> he had been contacted by a management company in the U.S. and agreed to front a band that had been put together. Uh, Nick Simper had also been contacted by these people, but he turned it down. Uh, this would wind up in a lawsuit brought by Deep Purple's management, although Deep Purple was inactive by 1980. In the aftermath of this, Evans lost all future royalties from the Deep Purple albums that he appeared on, and he has been out of the public eye ever since. Well, you know. Uh, and the thing was, know, it's, well, he, he lost the royalties because he didn't have money to pay the money that the, that Deep Purple was awarded. They talked about it some, and I think John Lord said, you know, he said, we, we liked Rod Evans. We didn't want to sue him, but it was the only way to get this stopped. When they were inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he was included in the induction, but he did not show up, which was weird because Nick Semper would have shown up but was not inducted, and that was not Deep Purple's call. That was the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's call. Nick Semper fared a little bit better over the years. He played with a variety of artists. Most notably, he had a band called War Horse that came out in the 70s. They did an album. Um, I have not listened to it. I have heard a few good things about it. And again, uh, like I said, he, he did some more stuff, I think, with Screaming Lord Such. And he's still out there playing today. So that's what I've got just on Deep Purple's Mark One lineup. I'm not, I'm not sure what mark they're up to now. but <laughs> So, yeah, the next one we'll do uh, will be the Mark Two lineup. Um, and we may not cover all of that. We may cover just a couple albums on that one because that will be the more classic lineup that everybody thinks of when they think of Deep Purple. Hope you enjoyed this and uh, hope you learned something. And uh, yeah, go check out those first three Deep Purple albums. They're actually pretty good and worth listening to. So yeah, you'll see why they're a big influence on metal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's all for now. I'm Jody. And I'm James. We'll talk to you later. Bye. The Macabre Manor is brought to you by the Twin Terrors. All rights reserved. Stay tuned for some fun outtakes. Changing my pants. Thanks. Another good reason not to have video. <laughs> That's a great reason not to have video. <laughs> ah, there we go. I don't want to know. <laughs> Shop smart. <laughs> Shop that smart. smart. <laughs> Oh, sorry. When you said that name, I got a little sleepy. I'm not sure why. <laughs> oh, man. <clears throat> As I take a moment to try and not choke on my own saliva. <laughs> uh, British. Uh, Brit British? <laughs> British. That, that's, 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 that's quick in Britain. Britain. <laughs> uh, I, I was hoping you were going to say, fuck you, philologist. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'll leave that in. Brown chicken, brown cow. Yeah, yeah. That, that's <laughs> that's how the tame boy coo started. You know, brown brown cow. Yeah. Um. Okay. <laughs>
okay, my print on my screen is a little small and I'm going blind. Um, <laughs> all right, I'll drop something in there. Am I ready to beat a honey? Mm, no. <laughs>